0: Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. Bit of a long one this month, but it was a really good conversation and I just didn't see the point of cutting it short. I'm talking to Emma Weber. She's an expert in learning transfer and the use of action plans and coaching to make sure that learning gets transferred into the workplace and drives performance improvement. And seeing as that is actually the whole point of learning and development, I thought it was worth spending time on the conversation. So it's a bit long, but there you go. I'm here with Emma Weber. Hi, Emma. How are you?
1: Great. Thanks, John.
0: Over there in Australia. So I think you're the first person from Australia we've actually had on this podcast. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Really pleased to be here with you.
0: Well, it's good to have you. And what is it that you wanted to talk about today?
1: Learning transfer and creating business impact from learning is a real passion of mine. And I felt it could be of interest to some of your listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those things we all wrestle with. And um, not just in what we do, but also in terms of persuading businesses to actually buy into doing a lot more than tick-boxing training courses, but to actually delivering on the part about learning transfer and making sure learning makes a difference. Yeah. I'm actually having this exact problem at work at the moment, which is why why I'm really interested in this one. So how are you going to structure it?
1: Well, my plan is that we talk about learning transfer sort of big picture and um, why the industry is sort of grappling with that then to look at some of the principles in terms of reflection and accountability then sort of consider when should we use transfer and who needs to own it within an organization and then finally i'd love to share some practical tips that trainers and learning professionals could actually take away and start to use now so they're my they're my thoughts john
0: okay so the sort of big picture stuff first reflect reflecting what was that point you said about reflecting on it i didn't quite catch that one
1: Yeah, certainly. So reflection and accountability are really important within learning transfer. So I've got a couple of catchphrases. One is reflection, not reminding. And secondly, is holding people accountable to themselves. So looking to elaborate on those so people can really start to use those principles in the learning transfer solutions they work with.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So you mean reflection as a process within the learning cycle, within a a way of embedding learning, right? Sorry. Yeah. And then you talked about, uh, well, you said accountability there, and then you talked about when to actually use the, so the transfer, how to do it, who owns it, and last of all, some practical tips. Yes. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, well, let's kick off with the first bit. You talked then about the, the big picture. What What is it you want to say about that, the big picture of learning transfer?
1: I think in some ways we can end up confusing ourselves as learning professionals because we use so many different words to mean the same thing. So people talk about embedding learning, reinforcing the learning, sustaining the learning, retention of learning, transfer of learning. Sometimes also I think learning effectiveness can come into that. And actually in m- most of the cases what we're talking about is actually creating behavioural change as part of a learning process. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of the
0: things we do is about habits, isn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, there are
0: skills, obviously, and knowledge involved, but a lot of it is the skills and the knowledge is kind of the easy bit. The hard bit is acquiring the habit or or choosing when to employ the skill.
1: Yeah, and those habits are actually our behaviours. So often what we're talking about is a behavioural habit or a mental or attitudinal habit which then has a knock on effect on our behaviors
0: right yeah that's that's really interesting i I was talking about this this issue just the other week actually um with somebody, and I was trying to define what we're talking about here, and I called it instead of being a skills gap or a knowledge gap, I called it a habit gap, and I think mm. that's what we're trying to close here is just just giving people knowledge and skills isn't enough. We do have to work out a way to close the habit gap,
1: yeah. For definite. And I think that's a nice languaging around it in terms of it habits and leading to behaviours. One of the challenges that I see is that often people talk about reinforcement and what actually they're doing is reinforcing the content or reinforcing the skill. And so just reinforcing something gives people more knowledge again, but it doesn't necessarily create a habitual change.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Most most methods of, uh, yeah, reinforcing, I was trying to think of another word, but most effort, what we do at the end of a course and, and um, on, following a course is activity to try and reinforce. And you're absolutely right. That's just about the skills and the knowledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. I-
1: And often it's the same as when people talk about embedding the learning. They might send out, you know, catchphrases from a program or, you know, what the three key learning points or let me send you a video, um, you know, in addition to what we've covered on the, on the program to help you embed it. But it's, it's just, it's just often more noise or content on skills. And that's important, but we just don't, we just shouldn't kid ourselves that that is going to create behavioral change.
0: Yeah, that's, um, I also think we can borrow a lot from change management here because change management as a, as a field uses individual change as its kind of, as its way of delivering organizational change. Certainly models like ADCAR and things like that is an individual change model. And if you follow through a model like ADCAR, you do actually find it is essentially a learning enforce a reinforcement or embedding or, I'm, I'm using these words again. You've told me not to. This these they are they are basically exactly what you're saying. It's exactly that model. It's about changing habits.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's it's quite interesting because actually, if we look overall about at the field of change management or change programs, a lot of change initiatives fail still, and there's some um, horrendous stats out about the effectiveness of of change initiatives. And at the end of the day, a lot of people spend an awful lot of time clarifying, you know, what the change is about, getting people's buy-in, but what they fail to deliver is in the end people actually changing. So I think it's, a, it's the same issue, whether it's across learning or whether it's across change, it's about really getting people to physically change their habits and habits and behaviours. So um, I think there are things that we can learn from change management, John, um, but also, I think we've still got to know that there's still a lot of challenges within, within change management processes, too.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of change management programs tend to be quite front loaded. And there's loads and loads of work done on vision, on the inspiration stuff and designing lovely branded posters that are put up next to the T-point. But a lot of the actual making people change is about that kind of reinforcement, which is the R in ADCAR or the refreezing in the sort of Kurt Lewin model. A lot of it is about that grunt work of behavioral change. Of, the, yeah. the, of challenging the habits and that's the kind of less glamorous end of it but it's the bit that's it's a bit that's often missing
1: yeah and it's so easy to become front-loaded in our initiatives because they are the that's the piece that we can control and that's often easier to manage because it kind of has probably a start date and an, uh, and an end date and and something that we can easily map so then the temptation is to work on the part that we can manage
0: Absolutely. Um, and the part we can evaluate. Yeah. If we do, yeah. if we, if we do any evaluation, <laughs> then it's most likely to be very, again, at that beginning phase, the, the training course, not subsequently what was learned and what was implemented.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think partly the work of Broaden Nordstrom back in the um, mid-80s, which is talking about the manager's role in learning and the um, facilitator's role in learning and the participant's role, when we think of that framework of before, during and after… Um, I think people have almost over overcompensated into that model. And we know that our during is actually really, really good. And the before part is also the next easiest part to impact. So we go there, but still people are not doing the after part well at all. And I think when that model was created, we were so focused on classroom learning and classroom training that actually part of the model is skewed in terms of well, actually, if the participant has a conversation with their manager before, there's actually a much better outcome in the classroom and much more learnt during that period, but we still don't have the afterpiece, which delivers the end behavioural change. So it's, it's, sorry, John, go ahead.
0: No, no, I was just going to say, I was, I was just thinking then that it, it also presumes that we're talking about a single learning intervention, so like a single yeah. training course or something. Which again, I think the industry is moving away from that to being a much more of a kind of blended learning approach and programs and all sorts of other things and much less here's an isolated training course. Now go Definitely. away and implement it. And yeah. I think I mean, similarly with change management, people walk out of training courses, hopefully reasonably inspired, reasonably with some, yes. you know, with, with some good ideas, things they can take forward, things they can do. Then the real world hits. People are quite busy and then the kind of, it just doesn't happen. And. And that's the bit we're talking about today is how do you actually make, make this, that inspiration equal change, isn't it, really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you there, John, because people, they have the best intentions. They are inspired, motivated, committed. They've learned. They've had a fantastic experience. So, you know, that is all brilliant. But the intention, you know, doesn't actually create the outcome. And so this is where we need to bridge, bridge the gap.
0: I just want to mention at this point, we have done a podcast previously on transfer of learning with Roger Greenaway. So if anybody's interested in this subject and wants to learn more, that's a really good po- podcast to go back to as well, because Roger's approach is quite creative and quite uh, unusual in many ways, I think. Talks about poetry, for example, which I did try, actually. I did try and use that <laughs> since that podcast.
1: Well, I, re- I really like Roger's um, work and his approach because one of his fundamentals, and I'm not extremely close to his work but from what i've read one of his fundamentals is around reflection and that really kind of ties in with the approach and our beliefs around behavioral change is created through reflection not reminding
0: yeah absolutely and i mean that leads us on to the next point doesn't it which is which is your your catchphrase reflection not reminding do you want to just talk us through what you what you mean by that and the power of reflection in this context sure
1: and we've touched on it a little bit already, John, because it's to actually say, look, when we're creating learning transfer processes or creating learning transfer to go with our, within our programs, we need to really stop thinking about pushing out more content, giving people more information. We need to really help them reflect. So I always say we're never going to remind someone into beha- sustained behavioral change reflection is the only opportunity so it's a little bit like the difference between someone nagging you to do something and you driving yourself forward to do something um you know i'm sure we've all had the experience of you know the intention to go to the gym and the minute you know a partner or a friend starts saying oh didn't you say you were going to go to the gym didn't you ought to go to the gym this week have you booked in your time for the gym i mean i don't know about you but i get annoyed
0: uh, yeah i do but usually with myself to be honest (laughs) yeah
1: well and you get annoyed with yourself but the way i mean it may or may not spur you into action um but a lot of the times it's much more powerful if you can get that individual to reflect themselves as to why is it that the gym is important to them what is it benefit going to be of going to the gym what's the barrier going to the gym why we find it difficult to fit it within our schedule reflection questions like that will start to create behavioral change because the individual can reflect on why it's important for them and then start to move themselves further forward rather than being nagged on, well, you know, do you remember this piece of content and don't you think you should be doing it? Or even, you know, you set yourself an action at the end of a program and you were going to do this. Have you done it yet?
0: Yeah, I, I think what's really important about what you just said as well is the use of questions, because if you just give people time on courses to reflect what they'll tend to do is check their phones or wander to the loo or you know do something else because they just see it as a break and yeah. i think the use of a structured question is really really helpful in terms of making sure that is actually reflection and it is valuable
1: And this is just, isn't it just fascinating as to, um, you know, society's idea of, you know, what a break or reflection or switching off is now because switching off, it's often switching off to one thing and back onto our mobile devices. And, uh, you know, you're you're right, John, well well called (laughs) that that is often what happens.
0: Yeah, it drives me mad. It drives me absolutely nuts when when I talk to people about reflection. And um I I've, I've like you I've realized that I have to use questions because in order to get people to go through that process and just to leave the mobile just for another few minutes before, you know until the break but it's it's a really valuable process one one thing I wanted to ask you is do you have any opinion on is reflection necessarily an individual sort of introverted activity or is it something that could be social
1: well it's a really good question john and I think that reflection can be social, but reflection that creates behavioural change is better as individual. Because I think what tends to happen when it's at a group level, you get group think and you get group buy-in and group kind of agreement. So you may get, oh, yes, we should do it that way. Or yes, absolutely, that is best practice. But where is that person's individual commitment to make that change and move forward? Or is it just a concept that they're agreeing with the kind of the social norms and what the group is raising? So I'm, I do think there's ways to create group processes that are the best that we can offer as a group. But to really get behavioural change, behaviours shifted, that's an ingrained part of the way someone sort of shows up in the world, one-on-one is a much more powerful process to take that through. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm just, the reason I was thinking that I'm a fairly social learner and I find that I need to talk things through and then have private reflection time, but I find the talking things through, part of the process, helpful in terms of disciplining my brain to kind of, to learn something new or think something through, to to, to sort of translate knowledge into my own personality and my own circumstances. I do find the social phase quite useful. And by social, I just mean, it could be one other person, I don't necessarily mean a group. yeah. But I find that yeah. conversation helpful, and then, well, then I need I th- then I need time on my own, quite possibly in the gym, <laughs> if I get there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> if you're nagged, nagged or reflected into it. Um, I think the interesting thing is when we're talking about learning. For me, two parts of learning: there's the skills and skills and knowledge, and then behavioural change. And when we're sort of in the learning phase of really working out what it means to us, absolutely that social part you know, important to gain other, for us to then be able to make our own decisions. When we're talking about behavioural change, I often say it's about getting the individual to have a conversation with themselves. So often if you're discussing it with someone else, essentially what you're almost doing is you are kind of having that conversation with your own internal dialogue and really reflecting for yourself, well, what does that mean to me? If you actually have a group of people, say three, four, five, six, you know, however many, when you actually start having that group conversation, it's less about that individual reflection and having that conversation with your own internal dialogue and more about that external conversation with the group. So we find when we're creating behavioural change at an individual level, and, and for us, we, we recommend working over the phone rather than face-to-face. And that's because it actually facilitates that internal dialogue.
0: Ah, interesting. As a way of coaching, coaching people over the phone. Yes. Ah, interesting, yeah.
1: And so even if a client is in the same building, we will actually work with them over the phone for a learning transfer process rather than being sat opposite them or having them on video, Skype or a conference call. Because all of those becomes about the relationship between the two of you, and what we're trying to do through behavioural change is actually get that relationship with your internal dialogue that's controlling your thoughts, feelings, values, and beliefs, and ultimately your behaviours.
0: Wow, I hadn't considered it from that point of view. That's really interesting. So that internal dialogue conversation is the key to reflection. Yes, effective reflection.
1: Yeah, great. Sorry, go on. I know we need to move off reflection, John. I'm conscious of that. (laughs) That's all right. Don't worry. (laughs) I just want to add in a couple of things which I think are important. So much as you raised around the, ref- the reflection being created by questions, you need to make the re- reflection specific and you do that through the questions. So it's not just saying, um, you know, you could get someone to reflect by saying, John, what did you take away from that learning program for or from that training event? It's about getting much more specific. So it's about p- having people set objectives or goals and what have they physically done with what they have set themselves? So the gen, the really broad general question isn't going to be enough to create behavioural change. We need to be more specific. And also the reflection needs to be quite structured. So I think a lot of the time when people think of reflection, they think of someone sort of sat with their feet up on the desk just sort of staring into the sky, you know, musing over things. Um, I don't think that that's going to cut it and we just we just need to get as we said, with the questions, much more specific and structured.
0: Do you have any examples of that kind of question? Or does that come later in this, this conversation?
1: I, was, uh, I wasn't necessarily going to go into questions a bit later on. So let's just think of an example that we could put a question to. Um, so, for example, you know, if someone is thinking of, has been on a network, a program, part of the component might be around networking.
0: Yeah, okay, good example. They,
1: good example, thanks. So they may take away a commitment... What, what might be a commitment that someone makes coming out of a training course which, around networking?
0: They could commit to uh, starting a conversation that otherwise they might have been too shy to start yeah. at a networking event or something.
1: Yeah. And so part of the specific reflection around that might be, um, well, where, where has that worked and where is that easy to do? Where does it remain difficult to do? What's the barrier to actually having that conversation? What did you learn on the training program that can help you move forward with that? So they're the type of questions that I'd be wanting to delve into to help someone reflect on the progress they're making. And you, you might start with some basics. So, you know, how successful have you been starting a conversation at networking events? Um, one of the things that we love to use is a scale of naught to 10 and, Getting a person at the end of a training program to rate themselves on a scale of 1 to 10, for example, how, how are you at starting conversations at networking events? 10 is you're fantastic at it. 1 is you're basically nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so if you give yourself a scale of a score at the end of the learning, based on your behaviors before you've attended the event, Then when you're being specific with your reflection, you can actually check in with a person as to what number they've got to on their scale of one to 10. What have they done to move that number up? And if they wanted to move it even further, what can they do next steps? So it's a really quick way of creating structured reflection to help people move forward.
0: And it's around a very specific topic. In this particular case, it was literally starting a conversation, which previously they would found difficult. So it's around yeah. a very, very specific behaviour.
1: It is, yeah.
0: And it is, you know, where, does, where has this worked in the past, what's difficult, etc. Going through that, that process, I think, is, is really useful and then applying the learning to that. But it's that very specific, it, it starts at the very beginning with that, I'm just repeating myself here, <laughs> I'm just saying, but yep. it's that very specific, uh, isolating that specific thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And so it's isolating, how is the learning, how is that learning going to be useful to you in your day-to-day role or in your life? And what can you practically do with it? I, I get It's quite interesting when people have been on um, training or learning programs or conferences, you could say to me, well, what have you? What did you learn at the conference? Well, I learned this, this, and this. Well, what are you going to do with that learning? Because I would much rather know what someone's going to do with what they've learned than what they've learned.
0: Yeah, it's the so what question, isn't it? Yeah. So what are you going to do with it? What next?
1: Yeah. And it, let's... Is- yeah. Is, there a,
0: is there a process before this? Because um, in that example there, I said starting conversations cold when you don't know the person at a networking event. People can quite often find that difficult. I know I do. Is there a process before that where you need to kind of reflect on what those specifics are?
1: Yes. And that comes, we are going to cover that off, John. That My aim is to get to sort of practical tips. And that all starts with the action planning. Right, okay. And the action planning that needs to happen at the end of the learning intervention, when you're really in that inspired place, I've learned, I'm excited, I want to apply this, that is the moment to get really specific as to what those objectives are.
0: Well, let's talk about that when we get to the practical sure. tips, Ben. You can talk us through your action planning process. And I know sure. that you've got an action plan that you're willing to share with listeners if they, if they contact me or you. So um, we'll talk about that a bit later. Great. We were talking then about reflection, the role of that. Let's move on because the, the, th- the third sort of point you mentioned was around accountability.
1: Sure. What I think is interesting is sometimes accountability can have a bit of a, um, an off feel within an organization. Oh, I'm going to be held accountable. Um, oh, someone's going to hold you accountable for that. You know, it's just not an attractive word, which I think is unfortunate because – we can actually hold, support people in holding them accountable to themselves in a really positive way. So when I think about accountability and talk about accountability, I'm talking about helping the individual hold themselves accountable to themselves for what they want to put into place. So if, for example, back to our gym analogy, if someone really wants to go to the gym, I want to help them hold themselves accountable to that. I don't want to nag them or beat them over the head when they don't go. And so I think there really needs to be a shift around accountability being a good thing because it actually helps people get even better. It helps people learn. It can be really encouraging and really supportive rather yeah. than the negative.
0: I'm just thinking that through as you're talking there. And I know you say before things like transfer of learning is about change. It's a change process. And that's why we need to be held accountable. Can you just put that into something more practical, like a practical example of what you mean?
1: So let's just, let's think back to our sort of networking example. Yeah. Okay. Potentially that could be quite tricky to implement if, particularly if, you know, shyness has been a challenge or it's something that's really outside of a comfort zone. Yeah. So to have someone working with that type of objective, supporting you, cheerleading you, taking you to that point where you can really follow through and possibly, you know, reflect on on the times it's worked the times it's fallen flat on its face you know one of the things around learning is often um people will you know do a role play in a learning environment about how to how to execute something they go back and try it in real life with a real human who hasn't been on the training program and it falls flat and then the person then says well it doesn't work in my business or it doesn't work in my scenario or it doesn't work for me whereas actually it just needs tweaking and so they're the things that can actually derail behavioral change. But if you've got someone helping you hold yourself accountable to moving forward at those networking meetings, then you've got a whole different, whole different ball game. Often when I'm held accountable to what I put, want to put in place for myself, you know, it's often the night before I'm having a check-in about that process that I'll follow through on those actions or the day before and that's just the nature of being held accountable we're all really busy often things don't become a priority particularly in terms of a soft skill until someone we know we're going to have a conversation with someone or they're going to follow us up in a supportive way not an nagging way does, does that is that a good enough example john or
0: yeah i think that's a good example of um of something whereby you would need to use whereby you would need to use accountability because it would be so easy to go to a networking event and as you say kind of try it and fail because you're so nervous and it just comes across awfully or you don't try because as you said it's so far outside your comfort zone and therefore you conclude that no actually this doesn't work. I can see how that's a good example but how would we as as learning professionals do the accountability piece? How would we put that in there so that that person then goes around it into a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle?
1: It needs to be part of your learning design process. So it's not something that's actually thought of, oh, well, now we've delivered a program or delivered an initiative. Let's try and get some transfer. So it needs to be part of an end-to-end process. And really, it comes down to sort of the next, next points we're going to be talking about is, well, when to use transfer and who owns it. And so through making d- strategic decisions around that, then you can get to the point of how you physically make it part of your processes.
0: Right. Okay. Well, let, let's go into that then. So you said when to use transfer is the next point that you want to talk about and, who, and then going into who owns it. Yeah. So what about when when to use transfer? I was surprised when you suggested that was one of the steps in this process. Wouldn't we use it
1: always? Well, it would, in an ideal world, in utopia, we would always be using transfer. Right. Okay. But in terms of the resources required or the changes in within organizations needed to really fully execute this, I think we need to be realistic.
0: I prefer being idealistic, but okay. If we <laughs> well, must.
1: We could do. <laughs> it would be a beautiful world if transfer was, in it, was within everything. But depending on the... I, I look at it in two ways. I look at the resources that companies have and the maturity of either their learning initiatives or of the management team. So I think we need to consider resources and maturity for a start. And then when we're looking at our spectrum of learning initiatives, looking at well, which ones have got a really high strategic intent and which ones have a possibly a lower level strategic intent. Now, obviously, every learning intervention is going to be useful or else why would we d- be doing it? But yeah. some are going to be more important in terms of strategically moving an organisation forward than others. Yes. And for example, if you're looking at something like induction, a person has actually had their whole environment changed and often they have to change their behaviours because they're in a new office, they have you know, changed their environment and everything is new to them. So in terms of needing to put a specific learning transfer process in place around induction, that's probably not going to be the best best use of your learning transfer resources. Okay, that sounds like an okay, but I'm not sure I believe you. Or okay, but no, I more. was
0: thinking. Okay, I was thinking if this person has faced a, a, a huge change, and their success in the organisation depends a lot on their ability to adapt to quite a lot of new norms, wouldn't that be a good case as well? There's quite a lot of habits that need changing potentially.
1: Potentially. It could be, and it all depends on the ability, to some level, of the ability of that individual person to change. But generally, for something like induction, people kind of have to change anyway. And so if you're investing additional resources into a learning transfer process, I think part of it is looking at, okay, well, where are we going to get our biggest return? And it may be that there's isolated cases that do need within induction or within in someone changing roles additional support, but typically the bigger strategic points where a company has an initiative that strategically they really need. So, so say for example, um, you know there's a sales team, they are you know p- possibly behind on targets, or there's a competitor's product coming out in the marketplace. And the sales team really needs to step up their performance. And it's a soft skill issue that, um, you know, we're feeling that the sales team need development on their sales technique. And it's strategically important for the business. That would be a really ideal scenario to use learning transfer for. The reason being, you know, the way people sell is often really habitual, if you're a salesperson and you're doing it every day and it becomes part of your identity. So start to change the way people show up as part of a sales cycle is a really important behaviour or habit to start to affect.
0: And and as you said, it's very aligned with the organisational strategy and the key success factors for that industry. Yeah. So that's where you kind of, because, because of resources primarily, we're talking about at the moment, we're going to talk in a second talk about maturity, but because of resources, you're suggesting that we tend to, we should try and focus our transfer efforts where we're going to get the most strategic impact or the, the biggest payback. Yes. So, so what's this point about maturity that you, that you mentioned?
1: So maturity then starts to possibly come down to, well, who actually should own that change? Right. So, and a lot of it would depend on the maturity of the organisation and the readiness of the organisation to step into learning transfer. So for an example, um, there's an organisation over in this part of the world that they were moving a lot from a lot of um, face-to-face learning into a blended approach and they actually had quite a large learning team but because they were reducing their facilitation hours because they were moving to from workshops to blended, they actually had some resources already on the team But what they decided to do was to switch those resources into learning transfer resources. And specifically in that organization, they now have the role of a learning transfer specialist that has learning transfer conversations with people after learning initiatives. So they have that resource in-house. They have it within the learning function. And they, they support the business in creating results after learning.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So in terms of actual practical activity, what are the sort of things that they're getting up to?
1: So it's quite, it's a new concept and it's new, new roles and we're actually working with them on, on how that is starting to pan out. One of the things they are going to be doing is having you know, what we call turning learning into action conversations, um, which is essentially an accountability follow-up coaching post-learning. So people will be having conversations and being held accountable to themselves once they've been on some of the strategic learning initiatives
0: right so it's building on that kind of reflection and accountability stuff we talked about earlier yeah with, a, with through coaching but focused primarily on the, those areas that are going to have the biggest strategic impact
1: yes that that would be a big big part of their role
0: wow that sounds really interesting i'd be i'd be interested in hearing about this perhaps in a few months time when it's when it's more embedded and you've seen it more in action
1: Watch this space, John, we can revisit. I can. (laughs) Let's do that. Share the story as it unfolds. But it's really exciting and I think it just goes to show the shift that people are having around learning transfer and realising, actually, this is a really important part of a learning organisation and a learning culture. So in terms of maturity, you also need to consider the maturity of the manager of the participant and the resources that they have available. And again, offsetting this with the strategic intent or the strategic need of the business. So let me give you an example. In terms of a leadership program or leadership training, often when people are looking at habits that need to be changed after leadership, they need to be really have the ability to be really vulnerable and expose areas that they need to um, reflect on in order to create change. The deeper the vulnerability, the easier it is in many cases to actually create the sustained change. However, it's harder to be vulnerable to that level with your line manager who has the direct impact on your you know, future promotions, possibly on your salary. There's also an argument to say a lot of the time in organizations, people wear masks and if you can get someone to take off that mask, it's much easier for them to reinvent themselves and implement new learning because there's not all this shared association of who they were and how they were. So for something like a really strategic leadership program, you might choose to outsource some of those conversations, much of the way as you might outsource the facilitation of a, a learning program, a leadership program, sorry. So that's one of the way we need to look at the maturity of managers. Also, when we look at managers, we might be looking at their resources and saying, well, actually, they are committed to learning. They really want to help hold people accountable to themselves after the training. But do they physically have the time to have those conversations? Do they have time to change the hat and really stop talking about day to day and get people to reflect? And so there's ways to bring the manager in and along the process without actually giving them full responsibility for that learning transfer. And in organisations at the moment, what I see is managers have that full responsibility for learning transfer because the learning department stops their ownership once a programme has been delivered. And it's often a programme that involves you know, skills and knowledge and um, attitudinal shifts, but it finishes once the content essentially, and the practice piece is finished. And then the day-to-day change goes down to the managers. But those managers, although they sort of know it's part of their role, it's very rarely done well.
0: Well, yeah, because I think you're absolutely right, partly because I think they don't know, quite know how to do it. They're not exactly sure how to get that learning transferred in. They don't have necessarily have time to do it. Maybe the, their attention just isn't placed there. They're, they have a lot of other things that they're being judged upon. Um, you mentioned about vulnerability if you are making changes, then potentially you're losing a certain amount of control, a predictability, or competence of the team might go back. There's lots and lots of reasons why that might not be um, might not be that easy for the manager to do. Sure. And and I think typically as well, I think what we tended to have done in learning departments. I like I like that phrase, learning department as well. And um, what we tend to do in learning departments is following some kind of half-heartedly following some kind of Kirkpatricky type thing we'll send a manager a form to fill in three months after or six months after the training course. And that's our idea of you know learning transfer and implementation, making the manager fill in yet another form.
1: Yeah. And I was um, with Charles Jennings the other morning. He was out in Australia and we were delivering a, a sort of a panel fishbowl event. And one of the things that Charles was talking about was actually getting the manager to sit down with a participant and asking them three simple questions about what happened at the learning event. And you know, everyone was excited about that. Oh, yes, let's get these managers asking three specific questions on a little car- credit card-sized thing. And as I said to Charles, I think that is a fantastic idea, but we are kidding ourselves if we think one manager asking that participant three questions is going to create sustained behavioural change. It's just not enough. And the managers that ask those three questions, we're heralding them as heroes because they're doing learning transfer or learning follow-up. It is not enough to create behavioural change. My personal view, and excuse me, being passionate about this, John, I just absolutely am. Uh, That's
0: okay. You're allowed (laughs) to be passionate. It's fine.
1: Thank you. Is that three 30-minute conversations over a three-month period will start to get you a real level of change. But a one-off conversation is really not going to cut it. And Charles, he agreed. (laughs) He agreed. But, you know, as he said, it's a step forward, but it's not enough. And really, it's about, you know, if you have the opportunity to change the whole culture of learning within an organization, the whole, you know, making learning part of a manager's KPI and something they do all the time, then that's what's going to create the change. But in a lot of organizations I see, again, that's utopia. That's, that's such a big cultural shift. And yes, let's start to twist the dial towards that, but we need to be getting results and impact from our learning initiatives now, irrespective of what the culture is within that particular organisation towards learning. So let's start to get some wins as a learning department. Let's start to get the business knowing what impact looks like from learning. Let's get them to start know what a good learning transfer process looks like, and then let's bring them along.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think the more we can do to support managers to make it easy for them, to know how to do this and if that is three questions on a credit card plus advice about three other half-hour meetings over a period of three months six months whatever then the more we can do to support them and make it easy for them so they know what to do i think the better my mind is wandering all over the place at the moment of things that i can do with this so I'm i'm really kind of quite inspired at the moment lots of ideas Maybe i have this. about things things we can do in terms of improving learning transfer
1: and there's lots of opportunities for us to start doing that as learning, pro- learning professionals. And certainly part of it is about, you know, giving the managers the how-to and then also being really realistic about actually even if we tell them how, have they got the time and the resources to do this? And this is when it comes down to resources and maturity versus the strategic level of an initiative. Yeah. And we, we kind of usually draw up a sort of a, you know, a two-by-two matrix John, to look at strategy high and low and resources and maturity high and low, put it into grids and then sort of say, well, where does your particular initiative or organisation fit?
0: So when you say strategy high and low, do you mean that the learning initiative is aligned to the strategy?
1: Yeah, sorry, strategic in, the strategic intent of the learning initiative.
0: Okay, so is it moving the organisation in the direction it's strategically trying to get to? Or Yeah. And then the other one was around maturity and resources. Yeah. So have we got the, the, the resources and the maturity by that? We're talking about, again, this line manager engagement and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So top right-hand corner is obviously where we want to be, I guess. In typical two-by-two matrix uh, style, we want to be in the top right.
1: Yes. And, and that may be kind of utopia. And if we think back to the organisation that um, you know we were talking about that's put the learning transfer specialists in, you might argue actually that that's top right. So they're internal, but they're not the person's direct line manager. Well, you could take it to another level again and say, well, you know what, utopia is that the line manager is doing that, and that's the the top right. It all depends on where that organisation is.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose the top right is really just about um, transfer is ha- happening. It's able yes. to happen. The space for it to happen within the organisation, within the processes. Um, the space for people to to learn new stuff and try and implement it, and it's and it's taking the organisation in the right direction. How you do yeah. that is a different question. Whether it's internal, external, line managers, whatever. But the point I suppose is it happens.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And, anyway, rather than getting bogged down in how to design this perfect two by two matrix, <laughs> and how to name each quadrant, I was trying to think of names for the quadrants as well, and I realised that's not productive. That's not what. That's not what this is about so where do we go next with this? So we've talked about um, when to use transfer and really about who owns it there. Yeah. Where, 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 where are we going next? Is Are we on practical tips?
1: I think we're on to the practical tips because, you know, a lot of this is, is organisation dependent and programme dependent, but I think there's certain things that we can start to do better now, irrespective of how advanced we are in our learning transfer processes. The The important thing to know is that you know to get a really good result it's about an end-to-end process throughout the whole piece you know it's, it's when before people head into the learning intervention um, they're clear of what's going to happen in terms of a transfer process during the learning there's clear reflection and there's action planning we'll come on to that in a moment and then afterwards there's actually constructive reflection transfer process that happens but one of the things that I think we can start to impact now is the action planning during a learning process. And I am going to talk a little bit here, John, too. It's, it's easier if, it, if we talk about a model of face-to-face and then we can kind of layer it with blending if that's useful. But often what happens in every good instructional design learning initiative, there will be space for action planning and there will be space for reflection. Yeah. But to your, to your point... We're in rich learning environments, people get, have passionate conversations, and often they will run out of time to share all the content they have. And invariably what happens is the action planning gets pushed or dropped altogether. And what actually that means is that any of the previous content isn't going to be realized because the action planning piece hasn't happened or was rushed so there's a few things that I think people need to really start to get to grips with with action planning. First is it absolutely must be given adequate time. Because you compromise on that, you're compromising on your whole initiative. And so no matter how much content you've still got to go through, just drop the content and keep with the, keep with the action planning.
0: That's really, that's really important advice, I think, because I know I'm guilty of thinking I'll drop the action planning offer or I'll squeeze it because I'm so desperate to do the content because that's how I feel I'm doing my job properly. So I think it's very timely or very useful advice to remind us that actually the action planning is, is fundamental. Yeah. If, it, if it's done well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, without action planning, none of the content will come to will come to life. And it's really hard, John. And when I if, you, if I'm facilitating, which I very, very rarely do, you know, I still have this internal struggle for myself and I live and breathe action planning. So, you know, we just have to acknowledge it's difficult as a facilitator but it's essential and it's a skill that we as facilitators need to learn and to learn to prioritize not to squeeze the action planning so one of the ways that people can do that is by not leaving it till the very very last thing because often i think we've educated learners to know that as soon as the action planner comes out they're switched off and they're heading home
0: yeah that's true because because of the way it's more mobile checking time isn't it it's yeah Oh, brilliant. I've got 20, 25 minutes to check my mobile.
1: Yeah. And we've started to educate them on that because no one ever follows up on action plans. And in many cases, they are a bit of a waste of time.
0: So how do we make sure they're not a waste of time?
1: So a couple of things that we can do immediately. And then there's the kind of the bigger picture. So to to really not make it a a waste of time is to actually ensure that there's some follow up afterwards and someone is going to hold them accountable. So that's your kind of, you know, your gold standard. I think okay. using the um, scale of 1 to 10 on your action plans is really important and that can help people measure themselves and their own progress. So in the action plan template, John, again, I'm happy, you know, but I've, I've made an absolute conscious decision to really try and help shift learning transfer worldwide And so I'm really happy to share the action planning template that we use if people are interested or want to use that as a starting point for developing their own. But calibration, where are you with that particular behavior change on a scale of 1 to 10, really useful to get people to cut out the story and actually think of a number. It's also really important when you're action planning to get people to think of, well, why is this particular action important to me? Not necessarily what is it – it could be what is it going to give the business – but why is it important to them personally? And what is it going to give them personally? So often people say, you know, it's not the goal that keeps someone motivated. It's the why behind it. And that's really just sort of leveraging off that piece.
0: Is, is it, I mean, you're talking about follow up. Is it important that the person following up is some kind of coach or learning professional, or could it be somebody else on the course, for example, with agree to kind of hold each other to account?
1: Yeah. I think this does is where it takes us back to our matrix because if the program is not strategically important to a business's success, having some bod- buddy follow-up or kind of peer-to-peer follow-up is better than nothing. But it's a little bit like um, you know when your friend is following you up with going to the gym and then you both end up having a sneaky beer down the pub instead.
0: Oh, this sounds familiar.
1: Yeah, because, because you care for each other and you kind of let each other off the hook.
0: Yeah, this sounds like my Friday evening tennis game. Yeah. <laughs> which is increasingly evolving less and less tennis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you were both committed to that, but th- and that's the difference between actually having a proper coaching conversation and a peer-to-peer chat or a peer-to-peer follow-up. One of the other interesting things about follow-up that really just want to throw on the table here, logistics is a really key part of that process's success.
0: What what do you mean by that, logistics? Do you mean so in terms of actually just making sure that the meeting is planned, it's in the diary?
1: Yeah, and getting that communicated out to people.
0: Just to make sure it happens, yeah. To,
1: To make sure it happens. And one of my theories is that part of the reason that learning transfer is done so poorly is because the logistics is so complicated, So I'm sure people listening in that work in a learning environment can appreciate this, that, you know, you know how difficult it is to schedule a program and to get all the pieces in place to actually, you know, run a workshop and get everyone there. And you do that once for 15 people. When you're doing learning transfer, it's 15 individuals that that process needs to be completed for. It's not a cohort. And so it's just, I'm just outing that because I think it's really important that when you're thinking about learning transfer, yes, you think about how the, what the conversation is going to look like, the, the methodology for the, um, you know, the coaching, the learning aspects that need to come into play there, but also think about, well, how are we going to execute on these logistics?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. I'm uh, I'm just running through my head lots of things that I'm going to do when I get in the office today. That's all related <laughs> Have to being logistics? No, I've just been because I'm um I find myself just thinking about different things that I could be doing now. Trying to get to Utopia as always. Yes. <laughs> One of my many faults. Yeah. Not being realistic enough.
1: I think that's part of why we're in learning because we're passionate and we know the we know the way that people can grow and we know the results that they can create. So I think within learning we're drawn towards utopia because that's the kind of people we are. But I would Absolutely, rather we yeah. st- start to get results and start to get outcomes rather than wishing for a utopia that may or may not happen, you know, a year, two years down that two years down the track. Um
0: So we talked a bit about then we're talking about action planning and we mentioned action planning as the 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 kind of the precursor to doing that reflection because that that allows you to focus in hone in on the specifics and then then you can use those reflection questions to actually get some kind of tangible um stuff that you're going to do and now we're talking about kind of the, the again it's the commitment to self and holding and the accountability thing
1: and so just building on that for the action plan John. So we've spoken about the format of the action plan and the fact that it must be given adequate time. I think you've also got to consider, well, what is going to happen to those action plans? So where are they going to go to so that that person knows, you know, is their manager going to have a copy? And I'm kind of in two minds with this because I think it's great if the manager has a copy and they do something with it. If the manager does nothing with that action plan, I think it's sometimes worse than if they hadn't had a copy. So, you know, think about that piece But even when someone is doing their action plans in the room that you're facilitating and you take a copy as the facilitator, it's about if someone hasn't completed their action plan fully or says, actually, I need some time to reflect on this, it's actually about getting something captured there and then. What we've um, experienced is that if we don't catch an action plan actually in the room when someone is inspired and committed, it would take approximately seven emails or phone calls to chase that action plan back in because the moment is lost and the person has stepped out of that learning bubble and so you think of the administration required to actually chase that back in so i would just implore people i've been known to chase taxes away from you know training centers literally sure running the down the road <laughs> I really think I- I think I stopped the taxi before it took off, but there was certainly a window being wound down to pass out an action plan. Um, because I just Oh, I do prefer the image leave. of you racing down the
0: road. <laughs> there, That's a much funnier image. Please don't take that away from me.
1: <laughs> I am just so committed that I will not pe- let people leave without completing the action plan because I just know it will not happen.
0: So you take these action plans in, you, you collect them back in?
1: We do, yeah. Our business is around the field of learning transfer. You know, I, I'm committed to helping everyone grow through learning transfer, but that's what we've created our business around, learning transfer services, learning transfer delivery. Um, my,
0: so, my, yeah. I was just going to say, my, my uh, um, experience of, of action planning is more that the people take it away and it becomes quite a personal document and they can share it if they wish, but there's no obligation to share it. Whereas you're actually saying, no, that gets handed back to you and then you take that forward with, with the individual, obviously.
1: We do, but that is actually under a a signature where we've signed off around confidentiality. Sure, of course, yeah. to to your point of, you know, it remains personal, it actually remains personal between them and their TLA specialist, turning learning into action specialist. So, and it's quite rare that we have to go to the point where we, you know, chase a cab, but we- Oh, you should have jumped in the cab behind, (laughs) shouldn't you have gone, follow (laughs) that
0: tap. That's what you should have done.
1: It would have made for a great YouTube clip, really, not it? I think we could have gone viral with the importance of learning transfer. Some
0: car chase through the seats of Sydney or something.
1: It it could happen. But often, you know, you just need to talk to people. And in our process, we actually um, train facilitators on how to do the action planning piece successfully to set the learning transfer up for success. So originally... Um, When I started this business, you know, I would physically go in and my team would physically go in and collect the action plans and have the conversation with participants. Now we actually have the facilitators trained to have those conversations actually at the time of action planning and then we do the follow-up over the phone, helping people hold themselves accountable all over the world. So we've got a team of over 40 people around the world that are having Learning Transfer Conversations.
0: And what would they be, like just one, one conversation, one half-hour conversation, or is it multiple conversations?
1: So it's multiple conversations. It's different for every project, but it's, it's usually over a sort of a 10- to 12-week period because I think that's how long it takes to really start to embed those behaviours and for them to become habits, as we were talking about earlier. A single conversation does not create accountability for behavioural change. It's a tick and what we what i am absolutely passionate about and this you know this is the other tragedy within learning transfer at the moment is i think a lot of the time we're trying to do learning transfer through ticking the learning transfer box without really caring am i getting the behavioral change because the minute you are trying to tick the box on something much to, as you were talking earlier about you know getting managers to fill in a form that is never going to inspire someone into changing their behaviors filling in a form
0: no absolutely
1: yeah, the minute you go to tick the box, you've crushed the whole process.
0: Yeah, well, quite quite the opposite. If you're making people fill in the form, I think actually you do, you're doing more harm than good.
1: Yeah. You're, yeah. Actually,
0: you're actually creating bureaucracy around the process rather than yes. anything effective.
1: Yeah. And then it just gets people turned off completely towards the whole idea.
0: Absolutely. And I also think you make your, you, you play into the stereotype about training services. Because you you then become about forms and you become you you look and appear much more distant from the actual day to day pressures yeah. that people are under the pressures that managers are under the pressures that individual contributors are under you just appear more and more remote because you're just making people fill in forms that, that don't add any value for that individual and it feels like a tick box for yeah. what I'm going to call the training department because that's what it would feel like it would feel like a remote training department
1: and you know, you are so far removed from the reality of what's happening for that person. Interestingly, what we find is that, imagine if someone is on a, has been on a workshop, we easily get an 80% response rate from what we call progress review forms, which are sent out three months after that workshop. Now, the reason that we can do that is because people are still so engaged in the learning and the behavioral change. So, I, th- I think if you would speak to most learning and departments, and they say, "Well, we if we send out a progress review form three months after a learning, we'd be lucky to get twenty percent responses," and I can hand on heart tell you we get eighty percent time and time again because we've taken people on a learning transfer journey, and it's just it's just a different ball game to a to a tick in the box.
0: Completely different ball game. I completely I agree with you. And I am, as you can tell, passionate about my hatred of these tick, tick boxy bureaucratic things, which are just annoying and they're just, they're not serving anybody's purpose and they're not effective and they just drive me mad. So anything that's effective and makes it feel like learning is really an integral part of how an organization succeeds, I think is, is exactly where we need to be getting to as a profession and much further away from this kind of bureaucratic tick boxy ivory tower isolated training courses, which are Pretty well delivered, but you know, not that valuable at the end of the day. Sorry, soapbox. I'll put my soapbox, soapbox. on one I'm, side. Sorry,
1: I'm with you. <laughs> we'll share the soapbox.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just it drives me nuts. I'm sorry. So, in terms of uh, just on action planning, I'll just remind everybody that you have sent me a copy of the action plans that you use. So, if anybody does want a copy of that, then please get in contact your details Emma are on the trainer tools website trainer-tools.com so people will be able to contact you directly or if people want to contact trainer tools as well you can do there's a contact form on the website and we'll very happily send you a copy of this document because I haven't worked out how to put it on the site to be downloaded so people have to contact me and they'll have to email them
1: yeah and I'm really happy for people to reach out to us john and we have a you know a newsletter where we share our passion for learning transfer and we send it out monthly it's not an annoying thing but we just we just talk with our community about learning transfer so if anyone wants to jump in and get involved in that then very welcome for them to reach out to us
0: and where, where would they find that
1: so they can sign up for that on our website which is transferoflearning.com
0: transferoflearning.com okay
1: yep and they sign up and they receive a free chapter of my book turning learning into action um and subscribe to the newsletter at the same time but john one of the things i always say is i'm really keen just to even have conversations with people who are interested in learning transfer and just want to try and move it forward in their organization so again please reach out to us it's emma at lever learning l-e-v-e-r com. i'm sure you'll put the details on the trainer tools podcast so so you know like minds i think flock together i've really enjoyed our conversation this evening and it's just great to hear you so inspired and hopefully with some ideas to take away
0: yeah absolutely i really have got loads of great ideas and some things that i already do but some things i can see that i could do better um and quite a lot of new ideas as well so that for me this has been a hugely valuable conversation is is there anything else that you want to add on
1: i think we're pretty much covered (laughs) On what we were hoping to sort of to have a conversation on today, John. So I just really encourage people to think about, you know, trying even if it's just one initiative that you try over this next year to put a robust learning transfer um process in place. I just really, you know, start small, take steps forward, and and bring your organization into what learning really can achieve. I would I would just say that as a piece of encouragement, John.
0: That's you doing learning transfer, isn't it? With with us, the listener. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's a small step. Can't stop
0: yourself, can you?
1: I can't.
0: (laughs) No, but that's, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is about solidifying it and thinking one thing, at least one thing I can do, ideally more. But, um, but, But listen, Emma, that's been really interesting, really valuable, and thank you very much.
1: My pleasure, John. Thanks for inviting me along.
0: So there you go. That was me talking to Emma Weber about learning transfer and use of action plans. I hope you found it useful. See you next month.